Welcome to the Politics and Public Finance Podcast, in-depth conversations that bring unique insights into the nexus between how governments manage our finances and the work of elective representative bodies such as parliaments. You're listening to Politics and Public Finance Podcast with Jeff Dubrow. So today's uh, special guest on the Politics and Public Finance Podcast is Monsieur Yves Giroux, who is the Parliamentary Budget Officer uh, for the Parliament of Canada. Mr. Giroux, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. Let's just start with a very broad question. Uh, what is the role of the Parliamentary Budget Office and why should Canadians care? So um, first question, the role of the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Um, my role is to provide nonpartisan and neutral information and analysis to parliamentarians on any topic that relates to the national economy as well as the nation's finances. So that's a a rather broad mandate and it's to provide information and analysis to parliamentarians. So that means senators and members of parliament on the state of the deficit or the surplus government revenues and expenditures, as well as the economy, so economic growth or recessions and so on. And and the purpose of that is to ensure that parliamentarians can rely on a source of information that's reliable and that's not biased as sometimes parliamentarians had that impression in the past, where for example, they had to rely on the Department of Finance or the government more generally to have an idea of the cost of certain proposals and the level of the deficit or the surplus. So they want to have, they wanted to have uh, a neutral actor to provide them with that type of information and analysis so that they can better hold the government to account. And it matters because in the absence of a parliamentary budget officer, the only source of information, notably on government finances, would be the government. And there was criticism in the past before the creation of a parliamentary budget officer that the government was uh, systematically underestimating the size of the surplus. It goes back a while uh, when the government was pretending that it would end the fiscal year with a balanced budget, but consistently overshot its uh, prediction when it came to a surplus. So parliamentarians in the early and mid 2000s were were criticizing the government and they thought they were deprived of the opportunity to have informed debates in the House and in the Senate as to how to use the surplus because the government was not giving them what they thought was nonpartisan and unbiased information on the size of the the surplus. So at that time, they said, if the government is telling us that we'll have a balanced budget, but in reality, we have a surplus, we can have informed debates as to how to use that, that surplus, be it tax reductions, additional expenditures, or um, putting paying down the debt. So that's why uh, the PBO was created to, to ensure that parliamentarians had that type of information that was independent from the government. That makes a lot of sense. And um, if, we, if we operationalize that, looking at your most recent activities report, you mentioned that you appeared before 11, uh, on 11 occasions before House of Commons committees. 
Can you provide an illustration of what your role is at those committee hearings and, and how does that add value to the debate and deliberations? Um, so it, it depends on what parliamentarians want to talk about. So when they ask me to appear in front of a House or Senate committee, it's for a specific, well, usually they have a specific um, topic that they want to cover with me. And I can give you one relatively recent example. The, the government through the Royal Canadian Navy is in the process of buying warships, what they call surface combatants. So these are warships, they want to buy 15, 15 or so over a long period of time. And they have provided, the government has provided a cost estimate uh, for the purchase of these ships. However, the cost estimates have been revised upwards uh, on a multiple number of occasions as the government gets more information on the cost of buying these ships. However, parliamentarians are not certain that the cost estimates provided by the government are accurate. So they've asked me to look at the cost, the likely cost of purchasing these, these ships, building them, um, uh, upgrading them to Canadian standards and so on. So we came up with a cost estimate that's significantly higher than what the government estimates these will cost. So they asked me to testify to get more information on the difference in costs between my office and the Department of National Defense. Um, and as part of that report, I also provided cost estimate of alternative scenarios um, purchasing different types of ships that would still be able to fulfill the mission that DND intends to, to have these ships fulfill. So they asked me to explain the difference in cost estimates, potential uh, alternative avenues if the government was to buy different types of ships still able to, to fulfill that mission. On other occasions, they asked me to explain the cost or the cost of certain proposals, certain other proposals, or um, explain to me uh, what are the consequences of, for example, the government not tabling its public accounts. So the financial mm -hmm. statements for a year that's, uh, that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's already closed. The I'm definitely gonna raise that issue with you, sorry to interrupt, but I'll definitely raise that with you uh, a little bit later. Please go ahead. So they asked me to explain the consequences for Canadians and parliamentarians of not having that information in a timely manner and potential remedies to ensure that the government does table these estimates or rather these um, numbers in a timely manner. So that's the kind of questions and issues they ask me um, to, to talk about when they, they invite me to testify at House or finance committees, but the topics are very wide. So I gave you a few examples, but mm -hmm. there are multiple other examples. Thank you, that's, uh, that, that's really helpful. You did mention in your 2021 report that um, there was a high satisfaction rate with PBO services, but you also mentioned some room for improvement. Can you elaborate on what you had in mind or what feedback you received in that regard? Yeah, overall, uh, the services were highly regarded. Um, parliamentarians were very satisfied with the timeliness of our responses, the accuracy, and the um, um, the yeah the not 
just the accuracy, but the relevance of our reports. But we found that many parliamentarians were not fully aware of the type of services we can provide them and were not fully aware of the tools that already exist on our websites. So despite the fact that I thought we were well known, at least among parliamentarians, there is still an information gap that persists uh, among our primary clients, that is senators and MPs. So mm. there is still some work to be done on outreach. That being said, the survey was conducted almost a year ago. So maybe things have improved. Um, however, with an election that happened in between, there is uh, a number of parliamentarians who were first elected mm. in September. So there is an ongoing need to make sure that our services, our mandate is well known and also well understood by parliamentarians. So what do you do? What does your office do to uh, orient new newly elected MPs uh, with respect to the role of the PVO? The, the Library of Parliament has uh, orientation sessions for parliamentarians, new as well as those who have been reelected. So we inserted ourselves into that process uh, so that, that when the parliamentary and librarian has their orientation, orientation sessions for MPs and senators, they, they talk about our services. We've also been invited as part of these sessions to explain our role, well, talk about our existence, explain our role, and answer questions that parliamentarians have. And we also do outreach by emails, for example, uh, to parliamentarians, uh, all, par all parliamentarians, not just those that have uh, recently been elected or appointed in the case of senators. And we also offer briefings to senators and MPs after we release a report and we offer them individual briefing sessions if they have particular issues of interest. For example, for a newly elected MPs or newly appointed senator, it can be quite daunting to understand how the government finances itself, uh, mm -hmm. notably through the estimates process, which are mm -hmm. pieces of legislation that finance the ongoing operations of a government. So we offer them these types of briefings. So, we ensure that they know we exist and what we do. And for those that have an interest that goes beyond that, uh, we're available to, to explain to them the work we do and also try to help them understand the intricacies of budget making, government financing, and any other topic that are relevant for them as legislators and as they have responsibilities to hold the government to account. And I'm sure, I don't know if you're comfortable answering this question, but um, you tend to get more uptake from opposition members than government members. And of course, you, you've served more than one parliament, so it's not necessarily reflective of any one government in particular. Um, yes, so that's, that's a good point. We tend to get more interest when it comes to reports. So tabling our reports or briefing on our reports. Uh, more interest from opposition MPs. So that's when they ask us to, to produce reports on specific topics, but not exclusively. We've had parliamentarians from the governing party ask us to uh, 
study specific items and, and produce reports on these. But when it comes to briefing, for example, on how government estimates and government decision-making works, it's from MPs and senators from, I'd say from all parties equally. Uh, in a similar manner, when we table a report and we provide a briefing to all parliamentarians, we have um, MPs and senators, as well as their staff, from all parties who attend and ask questions. So contrary to what people may believe, it's true that opposition parties and members use our reports maybe more vocally, but there is an interest from uh, MPs and senators from all parties. It's just that the use is slightly different from uh, opposition MPs and senators than it is from those of the governing party. Yeah, I've done a lot of work throughout my career working with public accounts committees and particularly I see some of the, the PACs across Canada at the provincial level, they really do feel like opposition committees that the government members don't necessarily have the same level of interest. And that's why I was wondering uh, sort of what your perception was around that. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was with respect to the independence of the PPO. Uh, I've done a lot of international work making recommendations to, to parliaments with respect to whether uh, they should adopt a, a PBO model versus a parliamentary research model. Obviously, here the PBO is, a, a, you know, one of its merits is it's independent, and therefore it can it can question the government's figures in a more uh, robust fashion. Uh, whereas a lot of the parliamentary scrutiny type units will spend more time summarizing the information that's been provided for Parliament or synthesizing. Um, my understanding is that the PBO has gone through, and Canada has gone through a, a bit of a rough ride at the beginning prior to your tenure uh, in terms of becoming an independent institution. Um, feel free to talk about that. But then I think also um, uh, maybe you could talk about how the PBO's uh, uh, independence has been strengthened uh, with, I think, an updated act uh, that, that was passed in the last few years. Yeah, that, good question. So initially the PBO was uh, created and the first incumbent was appointed as uh, a section of the Library of Parliament. And the library, the library and the parliamentary librarian is uh, a governor and council appointee that serves at pleasure. So it means that mm -hmm. she can be fired if the government doesn't like what she does, how she does it, what she says. It hasn't happened, but it's possible that the government, the executive could put pressure at that time on the librarian for her or him to control the parliamentary budget officer who was reporting to the parliamentary librarian. So the level of independence was not optimal at that point. And we saw that it raised questions when my predecessors questioned the government, notably with respect to the Deficit Reduction Action Plan. And he wanted to have information that the government was refusing to give him. So the level of independence was far from being optimal. So that raised questions as to what the PBO, uh, what he could do really without getting fired or at least getting told, being told by the parliamentary librarian to calm down. So fast forward to 2017 to resolve that issue of the lack of independence uh, for the PBO, legislation was amended to make the institution 
an independent agent of parliament. So no longer a, a section or a subdivision of the library of parliament, but an agent of parliament in its own right with more independence than it had before. Uh, so an agent of parliament and in the same same nature as the chief electoral officer, the auditor general, or the commissioner of official languages. So no longer an appointment exclusively of the executive or the government. So still a governor and council appointee. That's the nature of agents of parliament, but uh, somebody who is recommended by cabinet to the Senate and to the House of Commons. So I had to have three job interviews, so to speak. One uh, selection criteria and interviews uh, by, by representatives from the Privy Council office, so the government, but then both, house, both chambers had to approve my appointment, both the Senate and the House of Commons. In the case of the Senate, they asked me to testify as a, at the Committee of the Whole. They grilled me for an hour before agreeing with my appointment. My appointment is also for a fixed duration of seven years and I can be fired only for cause. So um, I'm very independent. So I don't report to uh, another governor and council appointee. I report to both houses, both chambers, sorry. So the speaker of the house, the speaker of the Senate, as I said, fixed seven year uh, term appointment. So I can be renewed, but within that seven year period, I'm very independent. And as I said, the, uh, the office is now a standalone entity, um, same vein as these other agents of parliament that I talked about. So a lot of independence, uh, I can do pretty much whatever I want within my mandate for that duration. And to fire me would require the uh, approval of the Senate, the House of Commons, and the government, which is very unlikely, and they, they'd have to have a good reason to fire me. So a lot of independence, which I think is a very good model um, for, uh, for that type of institution, a parliamentary budget officer. And it's good to hear that the independence of the office has been shored up. I know in your, your recent activity report, you did mention, and, and I have seen other cases, like for example, in the past, I've seen the Auditor General in, in his or her uh, annual report uh, to the Public Accounts Committee uh, make references to certain issues that were they felt were um, interfering with their independence. Uh, you mentioned access to certain confidential information. And you mentioned that this um, uh, includes the government's estimate for the cost of implementing bills before parliament and on gender-based analysis of those bills. Uh, I do a lot of work on gender-based analysis, so it definitely caught my interest. Can you tell me what your concern was and what mechanism you have within parliament to have it addressed? So the enabling legislation that created the PBO also states that I have free and timely information to um, free and timely access to information that's within the purview of federal institutions, departments, agencies, crown corporations. But there are a couple of exceptions. Uh, solicitor client privilege is one, personal information that's protected um, under section 19 of, uh, I think it's the Access to Information Act. So these make sense. I think by and large, it's reasonable uh, not to 
I, I wouldn't want access to, for example, your personal information held by uh, a government department. I don't need that type of information. Uh, but there are other exceptions that can be used to, um, to, to prevent me from accessing information that's necessary for my mandate. For example, a department can deem uh, certain types of data and information to be cabinet confidence, which is outside of uh, my reach. So if government departments were to say, this information, we have it, but it's cabinet confidence, sorry, can't give it to you. That's that, a fairly arbitrary or it can be a fairly arbitrary decision, if I understand correctly. It can be because I cannot have a look at it to determine if it really is cabinet confidence. So it's not an issue that's happened very often. It's happened once or twice. And it was, I could easily tell it was cabinet confidence because it had been discussed as a project, hadn't been implemented yet. So it was reasonable in that case for me to, to agree with the government that it was cabinet confidence. So it was resolved later when the proposal was released publicly. Um, but there are also other exceptions. And the one that's giving me the most trouble is um, taxpayer information. And I don't need individual taxpayer information, not at all, but sometimes I need tax information at an aggregate level. However, the CRA being the Canada Revenue Agency being extra cautious, at a certain level of aggregation, even if it's aggregate data that doesn't have names, addresses, they will refuse to give it to me because they say that by recouping it with other sources of information, I don't know, maybe Facebook, Twitter, whatever, or public information, you could, in theory, figure out who it is or which corporations these are, even if it's aggregate and it's stripped out of names, addresses, and so on. So it's preventing our office from having access to information that is at times necessary to have the capacity to cost certain proposals. So it's an issue that's causing me some trouble. We've found ways around that, for example, by accessing information that Statistics Canada has or asking CRA to aggregate at a higher level, which would still allow us to get that information without having concerns from the CRA about what they call residual disclosure. Uh, but I think that provision could be used to prevent me from accessing data that is necessary. So that's why it would be helpful to have legislative amendments that would give my office access to data held by the CRA without giving me the social insurance numbers, names and addresses. I never need that, but that would reassure CRA that they're not going to jail if they provide me data, even if at an aggregate level and by chance, if I was able to identify which corporation that is or highly suspect which corporation it is, I don't need that type of information. I'm not in an audit world, I'm in a costing world. So I don't care who has that type of assets, is involved in that type of activity and so on. I just want to cost government proposals. 
So if if um, if the Auditor General were to have a concern about independence, they would appear before the Public Accounts Committee, and the unwritten expectation would be that the PAC, potentially the opposition members, would would uh, would raise that question in the House, would champion that concern. Who are you expecting? Maybe expecting is too strong a word, but who would you be relying on um, to to champion your concerns about your independence? Well. Uh, the independence itself, uh, I'm not sure. I know access to data. If I'm denied access to data, which I think I need and I have rightful access to, it would be the Speaker of the House and the Speaker of the Senate. If I had concerns about my independence being curtailed or being jeopardized, I would probably raise it with the Speakers of the Senate and the House, um, which... Who else, aside from that, I think I would probably go to the finance committees or one of the other three named committees um, in, in the legislation. So there's four committees named in my enabling legislation that if they ask me to do something, I have to respond. So right. House of Commons, finance, public accounts, mm -hmm. government operations and Senate National Finance. Mm -hmm. So I would probably go to one of these committees and say, uh, Houston, we have a problem. My independence mm -hmm. is being jeopardized. Um, so that would probably be my go-to speakers and four committees. Makes sense. Um, with respect to, you mentioned fiscal transparency. I, I, I know that part of your mandate is to promote fiscal transparency. Can you describe what that means and just from your own experience, is that included in the mandate of other parliamentary budget officers? Uh, so fiscal transparency means, at least by my definition, it's it's broad. So I'm sure there are others who would have a better definition or a broader, maybe narrower definition, depending on who you talk to. But it's the concept that whatever the government is doing when it comes to raising revenues or spending, um, it has to be honest and open and provide accurate cost estimates uh, regarding its spending and revenue estimates. And it also has to be transparent and accurate when it, it provides um, an account of what it has spent and what it has raised in terms of revenues, as well as any difference between its estimates, initial estimates, and how much something did indeed cost or how much revenues were raised. So it has to be transparent with actual results and forecasts, but also with its uh, assumptions regarding cost estimates and revenue raising potential of measures. So it's broad, um, but it's uh, explaining what it plans on doing and what are the underlying assumptions that, uh, that support these, these forecasts and projections. And a lot of the work that I do internationally on fiscal transparency, um, you, a lot of good information available in the open budget survey. Um, I think one of the other, the, the concerns is whether the government is actually providing the information at all in a timely manner. And, uh, and so that the flow of information is predictable. I do want to talk to you about what you mentioned with respect to the public accounts. 
But um, so maybe we could actually start with that. The, so the, the annual financial statements, um, and you give a very good interview about this on the Hill Times podcast. But instead of me summarizing it, why don't you maybe give us a brief summary? Sure. So under the Financial Accountability Act, or Financial Administration Act, sorry, the government has to table its public accounts no later than December 31st of each year. And that the public accounts um, give a summary of the expenditures and revenues, and therefore the deficit or surplus of the government for the year that ended March 31st of that same year. So- And the debt for, levels as well, sorry to interrupt, the debt levels as well? Is that uh, yes. as well? Yes. Okay. So financial statements of the, the government. So for the year that ended March 31st, 2021, legislation stated that the government had to table its public accounts no later than December 31st, 2021, which the government did, but it did so on December 14th, 2021, which is late by standards of the last almost 20 years. Um, and th that's late because the year, the, the next fiscal year, so the year in which we are, had begun a while ago, almost um, nine months, um, nine months prior to that. And parliamentarians were asked to vote on the main estimates, on supplementary estimates A, supplementary estimates B, as well as a number of pieces of legislation to authorize the government to spend billions of dollars. So parliamentarians, MPs and senators were asked to vote on hundreds of billions of dollars in expenditures, but they didn't know how much the government had spent for the prior fiscal year. So that's a problem in and of itself because you're asking author authorization to spend vast amounts of money, but you won't tell parliamentarians exactly the, situ the financial situation at the end of March. So that's problematic in my opinion because it frustrates or it prevents MPs and senators from holding the government to account properly. And that's problematic because the Auditor General had signed off on the public accounts in September, September 9th. So these public accounts in theory would have been ready for tabling mid-September. Um, Mid-September would have been problematic for another reason because it was during an electoral campaign. I don't think it would necessarily be appropriate to table the deficit figure for last year in the middle of a campaign. But still, in a normal year, that would probably Why be not, appropriate. Though? Why not, though? Wouldn't Canadians have a right to know what the, what the deficit is? That's that's During a good an point. Election campaign. That's a good point. Um, the, the the idea is to avoid a discrete decision by the executive to be made during a campaign. But if there is agreement yes. before the campaign that if the uh, financial statements are ready in the middle of a campaign, that can be the practice from now on. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's probably a piece of information that would be very useful for voters before uh, they decide to cast their ballot. So December 9th, uh, September 9th, sorry, uh, public accounts were signed off by the AG. Subsequent to that, the government asked them to asked her to reopen the accounts because they wanted to change the liability related to First Nations um, children 
and those that were placed in foster homes, in foster care. Okay, the AG agreed to that. The, the public accounts were reopened, financial statements were adjusted, but in November, the president of Treasury Board uh, was signing off on the financial statements after the AG had signed off a second time. So by late November, everything was done. They were ready to be tabled, but the government waited more than two weeks with the uh, uh, financial statements, final, final financial statements for the year that ended in March. And so there was at least two weeks where everything was ready, but the government was not releasing them for whatever reason. They wanted to table that mid-December, which is pretty close to the holiday season where people don't pay as much attention. So maybe there was a communications consideration being made, but in my mm -hmm. opinion, it's, it's definitely later than is necessary to table the public accounts. And that's why I'm recommending that the legislation be amended so that these public accounts be tabled no longer than, than September 30th each year from now on. Right, and I think you're also you also mentioned that given that we had a uh, oh sorry uh, you also mentioned that in cases where Parliament is not sitting during the fall to permit the government to release the audited public accounts prior to their tabling in the House of Commons. Um, I, I guess um, so. My question would be: um, given that we had a federal election in Canada on September 20th, and the PM chose not to convene Parliament until November 22nd, so three months later. Um, why not simply require the public accounts to be released on a certain date if the House is prorogued or, or dissolved? And just on that, I think it seems to be a wider issue because certainly the Auditor General of Canada, uh, because the Auditor General can only table reports when the House is sitting, uh, didn't publish a report or didn't table a report for five months. Um, that included a fairly significant report uh, on uh, the enforcement of quarantine and COVID testing orders that may have been very much in the public interest and very timely. Um, so what are your thoughts about increasing fiscal transparency by, by not necessarily waiting for the government to decide when to convene parliament in order to make these documents public? Well, the issue of whether the AG should have the capacity to release reports when Parliament is sitting, is not sitting. I'll leave that to the AG to debate and, and to comment on. But items of importance like the public accounts that are predictable in nature and recurring every year, I think there's a, a clear case that can be easily made that they should be released no later than September 30th whether the house is sitting or not uh, for reasons of transparency, obviously, and given the amounts that are at stake, it's not just one specific um, sector of government operations, it's the summary of all government operations, revenues and expenditures. So I think it's easy to understand why these, the release of these documents, public accounts, should not be contingent on the house sitting or not, because uh, many things can happen that delay the return of the house following an election or prorogation. So I think it's, it's clear that we should have the government or the public service should have that authority to release the public accounts 
whether the house is sitting or not no later than September 30th for reasons of transparency and accountability. And two last questions, one of them very much on this topic. Is it time to legislate other key fiscal documents? Um, there are many countries that I work in where the, the Financial Administration Act requires the tabling of the budget by a certain date or the annual the fiscal update or, or um, uh, pre-budget statement by a certain date. You know, given that no budget was tabled in Canada in 2020, and there was really significant uncertainty as, as to whether the finance minister would even table a fiscal update in 2021, which I found very odd. And I don't think this is a story that I think the media really missed. Nobody would say, well, they said, well, will, will the finance minister table one or won't they? Not, not really recognizing the fact that this is crucial information, especially during, uh, during times of record debt. What are your thoughts about actually legislating the requirements to, to table these documents in a timely manner on an annual basis, rather than leaving it up to the discretion of the government? Well, there is certainly a very good case to be made for having a budget each and every year. I think there is also a very good case to be made to better align the budget process with the estimates process. Um, right now, you have main estimates that are tabled at least prepared and tabled before. So the, the appropriations, the, just for yeah, the listeners. Yeah, yeah, thank you, appropriations, before the content of the budget is publicly known. So parliamentarians and the general public look at the appropriations bills and they can't find recent announcements made in the, made in the budget because these two processes are not perfectly aligned. So in my humble opinion, there's a clear case to be made to legislate a certain window for the budget, maybe not a specific date, but at least a window so that the content of the budget can be reflected in the main estimates or the appropriations, the first appropriations bill. If not that, at least the second, the supplementary estimates so that parliamentarians and Canadians can make sense of all these different process. There's a budget tabled, then there's the appropriation bill, number one, the mains, and you can find their budget items that have been announced by the government. Um, legislating the budget date, however, also has drawbacks. It does not grant flexibility to the government in case of uh, an extraordinary event, for example, a pandemic or something else, a disaster. But there's, there are ways around that. The government can, can and very often does announce additional expenditures or measures to respond to specific events. And that was clearly the case before the pandemic. When Lac Mégantic happened, there were measures announced. When other events happened, September 11, for example, the government responded quickly to these events. And it's happened almost every year that in response to specific events, international crisis, financial crisis, the government is able to respond pretty quickly. You don't need a budget to respond to these events, but you need a budget to know what the government is planning on doing, the direction in which it is going, fiscally at least. So that's why having a budget every year in a certain time window is important for the purpose of planning, transparency, and accountability. And if other G7 countries were able to table their annual budgets, 
not to mention provinces like Ontario, then why the question would be, why couldn't the federal government? Um, I, I think I, I know we're running very short on time, but you, you made a very good point about the, the, the lack of what the Brits, the British call a clear line of sight within the estimates, right? In terms of understanding the connection between the budget and the individual appropriations. This is not a new topic of conversation. I find Canadian, this type of Canadian public finance issue is often like a soap opera. You turn it back on two years later and, and not much has changed. You know, there was a, there was a fantastic committee, subcommittee of the, looking at the estimates in 2006. And of course there was a pilot project in the 42nd parliament that actually attempted to rectify the situation. And it seems like that has expired and we're back to the old situation. Is that is that in, in fact the case? And is anybody actually pushing for uh, a realignment of the appropriations with the budget? Um, there is some interest from opposition uh, MPs, but that's that's what can easily be characterized as north of the Queensway uh, in terms of an issue. And north of the, of the Queensway is the area between the Highway 417 and the Ottawa River in Ottawa. So it's center town and it's the area around Parliament Hill. So yeah. it's not something that is of broad public interest. People don't usually understand that issue very well. Absolutely. So it's pretty much an area for public finance nerds like me. So it doesn't capture the interest of the average population, but it is very disconcerting for any MP or senator trying to make sense of these two documents. And it makes the job of legislators much more difficult when it comes to understanding what they're being asked to vote on when it comes to authorizing spending. Because as I said before, they see these massive bills uh, asking them to approve hundreds of billions of dollars in spending, but they can't reconcile that with the numbers they see in the budget because the budget initiatives are not yet in the main estimates they find their way in later so i think there clearly is a need to better align the budget and estimates process by having a budget table much sooner in my opinion so that you have the budget then you have the estimates and what's in the estimates or the appropriation bill is consistent with what was tabled in the budget by the Minister of Finance. And I would even go further, it would be, it would be easier to do that if the Department of Finance and the Treasury Board Secretariat, at least that the group that deals with the estimates were merged and were one institution, then the, the discussion and the preparation of these two important documents would be done by the same group of, of officials and there would be seamless communication between the two, which is obviously not the case right now. Last question, that's a very interesting point and I will definitely pursue that in future discussions. Uh, just very, very quickly, because I know we're out of time. Um, for new countries that are adopting the PBO model, um, particularly low and middle income countries, emerging, emerging democracies, what is your advice to them? Ah, um, try to have as much independence from the executive as you can when the enabling legislation is put, for, put forward and recruit 
as much as you can from the Department of Finance or government departments that are involved in, in the budget making process and the issues of interest. For example, if a certain country is heavily dependent on natural resources, try to recruit people that are very familiar with natural resource extraction and revenue so that you are very well equipped to assess the government actions in the area that are important in your country. But independence from the executive is paramount, not just having the staffing and the budget that's necessary, but importance, the, the, the independence from the executive so that you cannot be sacked if you say something that displeases uh, the cabinet or the governing party. That's essential. Fantastic. Mr. Giroux, uh, Canada's Parliamentary Budget Officer, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really interesting discussion and I hope we can continue at another time. It would be my pleasure. Thank you. Merci beaucoup.